Wow, what a story we have today. You think your family has problems. It's almost like this indirect encouragement to all of us who come with uh, come from families that have a lot of problems, right? At least you're not this family. There's a lot going on here in Genesis chapter 27. So let's pray and we'll start working through it a verse at a time. Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are high above all things. You are our creator. You are our judge. You are our savior. You're Lord over all the universe. So it it makes sense that we would gather at least once a week and we would sing praise to you and read your word and hear preaching from your word that we would pray to you that we would exalt you, that we would adore you, that we would demonstrate our love for you, because you are God. God, help us to see our life well. Help us to live our lives well. If there are some here today who do not see clearly, God, we ask that you would help them to see clearly. If there are those who see the physical and who see the material, and who see the obvious, but do not see the condition of their own soul before You. And do not recognize their spiritual need. And do not see as Your Gospel is the answer of all answers and the hope of all hope. God, we ask that You would help some to see today. God, help us to live our lives in such a way that we're thankful for every day that You give us and we're thankful because it's another day that we get to obey You. That we get to find out what pleases You today. We get to read Your Word and learn how You, God, would want us to order our lives and organize our lives and to deny ourselves and to live in a way that is for others and foundationally is for You. And may we see the extension of our days and the extension of our life as good and gracious because it is more opportunity for us to obey. If our life is long, may we be glad that we may long obey. But if our life is short, God, though none of us know the number of years or days that we have, You know, Lord, and You know that there are some in here whose days are short, and shorter than we even realize. God, we pray that the people in this room would have such great affection for You that while they would love for their days to be long, that even if their days on this earth are short, they would also be glad. Because to be absent from this place is to be present with You. To live as Christ and to die is gain. That people would be filled with joy at the thought of meeting You. God, we pray for the preaching of Your Word. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would would take Your Word now and speak it past our ears and to our minds and to our hearts. God, Your truth has set many of us free, but we know that Your truth means to set many more free. So God, help me to preach Your truth well today. And I pray for people to hear well today. And if there are obstacles or walls that can be taken down, God, we ask that You would take them down. We love You again. We're thankful to be before You as Your people. Help us now as we read Your Word. 
because we are a people dependent on you. You are our king. You are our savior. You are our treasure. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 27. And let's work through this one verse at a time, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Isaac was old. Definitely old. Isaac's 137 years old. Can you imagine living to be 137 years? And here's the kicker. He's actually not close to being done. He's going to live another 43 years. He's a 137-year-old spring chicken. He's going to live to be 180 years. This is encouragement to any of you who feel old today. You are not old. 137. He's being a bit, as we'll see here, a bit of a drama king. He's moaning like his days are coming to an end when actually he's got over four decades to go. 43 years he's still going to live. But he's 137 and practically he's blind. Okay, he's blind. He's not legally blind, I guess. Practically he's blind. He can make out shapes. Uh, he can see, uh, make a distinction between light and dark. But he does not see clearly. Cannot see things clearly. Now what we're also going to find out is that this physical condition is also the, the moral and spiritual condition that Isaac finds himself in. So not only physically is he not seeing clearly, but we're going to see morally and spiritually, he's not seeing clearly. He's not seeing truth well. He's not making good decisions. His relationship with God is not what it should be at this point. And it's reflected in the choices he's making and the decisions that he's making. Listen, this happens with Christians. This happens with people who love God. Some of you have gone through seasons, and so you know this is true. Some of you will go through seasons, and you're going to find out it's true. Okay? We're Christians, which means that we have been freed from the penalty of sin, which means that the penalty for sin is that we should not be eternally united with God. We should be eternally alienated from God. You don't go your own way and curse God and dishonor Him and disobey Him and disregard Him and then end up with Him for eternity. It doesn't work that way. Common sense should tell us that. The Word of God definitely tells us that. We all have gone our own way. Like sheep, we have gone astray, Scripture says. And we do not belong to God. Now, if you are a Christian, it means that God has saved you. He's adopted you. He's changed you. He's brought you in. He's brought you close. You're a part of the family. He's your dad, your brothers and sisters. Okay, He's worked to change in your life. Now, it means that that penalty for sin has been removed. Christ took the penalty for your sin. The cross was as bad as it was and as bloody as it was and as horrible as it was because it was the very wrath of God being unleashed on Jesus Christ who was willingly dying in the place of His people. So the penalty of sin has been removed and the power of sin has been removed. I mean, Satan tries to dupe Christians and tries to convince them that they have to sin, that they need to sin, that you need these things, that sin is better than God, and etc., etc. And we'll believe his lies occasionally, but 
The truth is, sin no longer has any kind of power over you. And it's, it's luring has been dramatically weakened by the residing presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian. But all that said, there's what's called remaining sin. Because if you're a Christian, the power of sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been taken. You're no longer in bondage to sin. But there is remaining sin. You continue to sin. You're here today and you can think of sins that you've committed since you knew Jesus that you're grieved by. For some of you, it's been in the last few hours. You know that most likely you're going to commit sins in your Christian life that are going to not only grieve God, but are going to grieve you. You know the reality of remaining sin. And some of us will find ourselves in seasons like we're going to see that Isaac is in here where we are not seeing things clearly. Morally, we're not seeing what is right and wrong. We're not seeing the distinction as clearly as we should. Our conscience will be defiled or our conscience will be weakened or our conscience could even be seared. And so our sensitivity to what is right and pleasing to God and what is wrong and not pleasing to God, it wanes. We end up doing things that we ought not to do. And the things that we ought to do, we're not doing. Because we'll go through these seasons where we're just not seeing clearly. And what God does in His grace is He at some point He comes and sharply awakens us and we see the reality of what we've been doing and where we've been headed. And if you're a believer, you turn back to God. I mean, King David went so far as to commit adultery and then to have the husband of his lover murdered to conceal his own sin. And then he went on for nearly a year not sorry about what he did. And this is, God says, a man after my own heart. You see what Christians are capable of. But then God in His timing sent David's friend Nathan to him who confronted him. His heart was pierced and he turned back to the Lord. And then he began to see clearly, what have I, what have I been doing? How, how could I do this? How could I sin against God and sin against others? How could I justify this? Listen, Christians are capable of doing that. It's why we take so seriously the means of grace that God has given us. Because we know we're always on the edge. Unless God hold us back, unless God restrain us, the future could be really dark, it could be really ugly, and we could hurt a lot of people and we could offend our God. So we're in the Word. So we're praying. We're not neglecting the fellowship of the saints. We're in worship. We're taking communion. We're taking hold of the means that God has given us because we know how weak we are and how prone to wandering we are. When we get to Isaac in this story, we're finding that he's in that kind of stage in his life. Okay? He's not doing well spiritually. He's not doing well spiritually. God is going to have to uh, awaken him. God's going to have to snap him out of his sin. So let's see how he's not seeing clearly. Verse 2, he called in Esau and he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Right? This, is, this is the drama king. Right? He got, he got 43 years. I mean, you're old. 137. No disregard. 130, that is old. But there's a bit of drama here. Oh, Oh, Esau. He's manipulating here. He's up to something. Okay, Esau. Son says, Here I am. He says, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. 
and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So here it is. He calls in his favorite son, Esau. His favorite son, Esau. If we go back to chapter 25, verse 23, we find out that Isaac and Rebekah had two kids, twins, Jacob and Esau, and they played a little bit of favoritism. Isaac connected better with Esau, and Rebekah connected better with Jacob. And so you find this weaved throughout this family. And so here it is. Isaac calls in the, the boy that he connects with, the boy that he gets along with, the boy that he sees eye to eye with. Okay, he calls the man's man, which is Esau. He has Esau come in, and he makes this really strange final request. Now, if we go back to 25, verse 28, we, we, we hear the basis, and we're not surprised at this request, because there it said, speaking of the favoritism, right? Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. But why did Isaac love Esau? Verse chapter 25, 28. He loved Esau because he ate of his game. Why did he love this boy? He loved this boy because he loved his, his barbecue. He liked his food. I mean, his, this is my boy, Esau. Remember the difference between Jacob and Esau, right? Esau is on the outside, he's masculine. Now we find out on the inside, he's, there's no godly masculinity there because he's a godless man, Hebrews tells us. And Jacob actually turns out to be more godly and, 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 and exudes more biblical manhood in the long run than Esau does. But Esau is the guy you look at and you're like, that is a man. That's a man. I mean, where does he spend all this time? He's out in the field, right? He smells like Dirt, we're going to learn. Smells like dirt. He's out hunting. When he's hungry, he goes out and he kills his food. That's awesome. He goes out and he kills his food and he brings it in and he eats it and he cooks the game. It tastes great. And this is who Isaac identifies with. And you remember Jacob. Jacob's a little different. Jacob's like, it's awfully dirty out there. I'm much more comfortable in here with mom. Bacon, cooking next to the KitchenAid mixer. This is nice. This is more comfortable. Mom, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Mommy. BFF. <laughs> mommy. That's where Jacob is, right? He's pulling on the apron strings. He's with Mom. He's in the house. And, and Jacob is out hunting. So Isaac makes this, this final request. He's appearing to be. He's not. But he's appearing to be on his deathbed. And what's his request? Meat. Some of you have a sweet tooth. Isaac has a meat tooth. I have a meat tooth. I can relate to Isaac. This is what he wants. So he calls in his son. And the second part of verse 4, what else is going on? He wants Esau to bring him some wild game. But then what for? So that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay, so here's what's going on here. Isaac is prepared to pronounce this paternal deathbed blessing on Esau. Okay, which would have been customary near the end of a, a man's life. He's ready to take his firstborn son Esau and to pronounce this one time paternal deathbed blessing, which was a really big deal. Okay, Esau remembers the firstborn, which means that he had a birthright. He had certain rights because he was the firstborn, as was customary in this day. Now, he was barely the firstborn. You remember that. He's got a twin brother. 
And his twin brother was literally holding on to his ankle when he was born. I don't even know how that works, but it happened. He comes out right on the heels of Esau. So technically, Jacob is second. Esau is number one. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn, which means he had a birthright. Now, if you had the birthright, here's what that meant. Three things. Number one, when dad died, you received double inheritance. All the kids get an inheritance, but the one with the birthright gets double inheritance. Number two, you would assume the role of spiritual leader of the family. Okay, So dad dies, he's no longer the leader of the family. The one who has the birthright now has rights to be the spiritual head of the family. And then number three, he would be the recipient of the father's deathbed blessing. And that's what Esau the possessor of a birthright as the oldest son would have. And that's what Isaac is prepared to pronounce to him now as he's nearing the end of his days. But this is not just any blessing. This is really significant. We have a tradition in our family and every night I go around to each of my kids. I put my hand on them as they're falling asleep and I pronounce a blessing over them. A lot of the blessings that I'll say at the end of a typical service on a Sunday, many of those blessings I personalize for them and others. But I go around and bless them. And I'm praying that God would work in their life and do good for them. And I'm doing this out loud with them every night. This is is a bigger deal than that. This is a bigger deal than that. This is a one-time blessing that the father pronounces on the child who has the birthright upon his death. And this is a particular family, remember. So in this particular family, okay, Abraham, now Isaac, and now Jacob and Esau, in this particular family, this blessing, this deathbed blessing was an acknowledgement of the promise God made to bless all nations through the seed of this family. So long ago, God in Genesis 3 promised to send a rescuer. Okay, a rescuer who we know to be Jesus, who hasn't come yet in our story. But God said, you need to be saved from yourselves. You need to be saved from sin. You need to be saved from the world. You need to be saved from Satan. And God says, so I'm going to send a rescuer. And now I'm going to deal with one family in particular, and that rescuer will be born in this family. Which is why he told Abraham, you're going to have children, and eventually you're going to have one child, and through that child, through that seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Why? Because he's the rescuer. He's the Savior, the Messiah, who will come. So you would have a generation of descendants, many children, Right, But in each of those generations of descendants, there would be one child in particular called the child of the promise through whom would be the line of Jesus Christ. So Isaac had lots of brothers, didn't he? Okay, Abraham, promise made to Abraham. Isaac had many brothers, Ishmael and others. But Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the son of the promise. And now the same thing is going to happen. Isaac may have multiple children, but one child will be the son of the promise. And it should be the recipient of this blessing. This final deathbed blessing is affirming God's promises to work in this family by blessing and acknowledging the child of the promise through whom eventually our rescuer is going to come. It is a big, big deal. 
this blessing that Isaac is prepared to give. Now, at first glance, this may seem reasonable, what Isaac is prepared to do. It seems like a reasonable request from an old man, but there's some things that we've got to pay attention to. There's some things that need to be pointed out here. First off, there, there are some concerns. For example, Isaac is not on his deathbed. Right? He's not on his deathbed. So why is he in a hurry? Okay, he's rushing this. The other thing that's interesting is, is that this is being done in secret. Who's in the room right now? Who's making this plan? Isaac and Esau. This was supposed to be, and and you can read elsewhere in your Bible, this was supposed to be a joyous occasion where the whole family comes in and is a part of this. Dad is on his deathbed and he's passing on the patriarchal leadership of the family. He loves all his kids. He would bless all his kids, but then there'd be one particular blessing for the child of the promise. And there's a feast that's thrown, a party is thrown, it's a celebration because God is working in our family. But he does this in secret. Where's Rebecca? Where's Jacob? There's other people in the family. He doesn't want his wife to know about it. Now, Charles Spurgeon wisely said that when a man is doing something he doesn't want his wife to know about, it is probably bad. (laughs) That's a no-brainer, right? But sometimes we need to hear that. And it's right here. If if a husband is doing something, his wife, so if a wife has some, well, what do you, calls him on the phone, what are you doing? Nothing. He's probably doing something bad. He's probably doing something bad. He doesn't want you to know about it. You're like, my husband says that a lot. Well, you need to have a conversation on the way home. If a husband does not want his wife to know what he's doing, right, like he's working this in secret behind his wife's back, it's probably not a bad thing. That's an indicator. But here's the bigger issue. The bigger issue is, why is Isaac prepared to pass on this blessing to Esau and not Jacob. Now we may push back and say, well, isn't that obvious? Esau is the oldest son. And the oldest son is the possessor of the birthright. But do you remember what happened to Esau's birthright in chapter 25? Esau sold his birthright. Legitimately. Legally. He gave up his birthright. Esau is no longer in possession of the birthright. Remember that funny story in chapter 25? He comes in and, and, and Jacob is cooking soup. Right? We're not surprised. He's at the stove and he's, he's making soup. It smells good. Esau's out in the field. This is how it always was. Jacob's in the kitchen. Esau's out hunting game. Well, Esau's unsuccessful. He doesn't catch anything. He's hungry. And he comes running in the house and he throws a temper tantrum like a child. He says, I'm hungry. I'm starving. And an American, when they say they're starving, they're never actually starving. Okay? And Esau was the same way. I'm starving. Remember, he got a nickname after this incident, and everybody called him Red. He was already red, the Bible says, when he was born. But in this occasion, he got even more red, and the stew that Jacob was making was red. And so he came in freaking out, saying, Give me that red stew. Give me that red stew. So Elmo, right? He's red. He's hairy. He wants the stew. And you remember what Jacob says? Well, I, I shouldn't just give it to you. We should probably, you know, have some kind of an exchange. Let's make this fair. I'll tell you what. How about I give you this bowl of soup and you give me uh, your birthright? 
right. And we would laugh and say, oh, that sounds like a fair trade. Double the inheritance, spiritual leadership of the family, and, and the father's special deathbed blessing. And what does Esau do? Okay. He does it, right? Sounds good to me. Why? Because he's, he's not thinking. Right? He's all about here and now. He says, what good is my blessing to me? He couldn't care less about the future. He wants to be taken care of right now. That's his priority. And then we learn in verse 25 of that chapter, it says that he despised his birthright. He hated his birthright. It means that he couldn't care less that he was part of the covenant family of God. I don't care. Take my birthright. I'm my own man. I can take care of myself. I don't need daddy's blessing. I'm not interested in it. What good is my birthright to me? And so the commentary the Bible gives is not that he was squandered out of his blessing, but he despised it. He hated it. So Jacob takes the birthright and then he makes him swear an oath to make it legal. So Jacob is in possession of the birthright. Isaac knows this. This is why he's doing this in secret. This is why he's in a hurry. As well, why is Isaac prepared to pass on this blessing to Esau when he knows what Esau's life is like? He's going to name Esau the next patriarch. What has Esau been doing with his life? Well, the end of chapter 26 said that he made life bitter for his mom and dad. He made life bitter for his mom and dad. The decisions he made, the choices he made, filled his parents with sorrow. He went and got not one wife, but two wives. And where did he get these wives from? He got them from a pagan and godless society. He went and found two women who did not know God, who didn't love God, who didn't give a rip about God, and he united himself to both of them. And he did it partly to rub his parents' face in it. And Abraham is prepared to make godless Esau, Hebrews calls him, he's prepared to make godless Esau the next patriarch. But perhaps most importantly, Remember God's words about these two boys. In chapter 25, verse 23. God said to Rebekah, okay, there's two children in your womb and from them are going to become two peoples and two nations. And what did he say? God said, and the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. What would have been traditional? What would have been traditional is that the younger would serve the older. And the older is the one in prominence. And the older is the one who rules over the younger. And the older is the one who has the birthright. And he gets the inheritance. And he gets the blessing. And on and on. But God was saying, while the children were yet in the womb of Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. What was God saying? Jacob is the son of the promise. Jacob is the son of the promise. Isaac should not be pitied here. He's not this pitiful old man. He is scheming against his family and more importantly against God. He's ignoring the promises of God. In fact, he's deceiving those in his family who love God and favoring the one who does not love God. Rebecca and Jacob love God. They're interested in the word of God. They're interested in the truth of God. He's casting them aside And he is secretly scheming against them with the intention of blessing godless Esau. So he is putting himself up against God and the godly at this point in our text. 
So let's read on and see how this goes. Verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Uh-oh. Rebekah was listening. She was listening. This doesn't say she happened to overhear. Right? And many times, gals may say this, right? Oh, I just happened to overhear. No? <laughs> or, or even better, right? I couldn't help but overhear. No, actually, you could have, because if you didn't have the glass on the door, right, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't hear this conversation. Because she's being a busybody here. Okay, she's not minding her own business. And granted, her husband's not very trustworthy, right? But she's got the glass up on the door, and she's listening in to this private conversation between father and son. So here's what you're going to see as we work through this, right? This family is a mess, at this point. This family is a total mess. No one trusts anyone in this family. It's really sad. Isaac doesn't trust Rebecca and Jacob. That's why he's doing this in secret. Rebecca and Jacob are now going to make a plan to keep in secret to deceive Isaac and Esau. So the circle of trust is very, very small. Normally your family is in the circle of trust. The family is not in the circle of trust here. Everyone's deceiving one another. So here's the plan. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. What's Rebecca doing? I'll show you, husband. She overhears his plan to deceive them. So what's her plan? We will out-deceive Isaac. So they hear about sin. Hmm, what should we do? Let's sin. Romans 3 talks about this. It's this thinking that says, let us do evil that good may come. Okay, the modern expression is the ends justify the means. And that's not true. God is interested in the ends and the means. The ends must honor God. Your goal, it must honor God. And the way you get there, it must honor God. Her ends are good here. Rebecca and Jacob's ends are good, but the means are bad. They believe God's word. They know Jacob is the son of the promise. They know that he should be the one who receives the blessing. They have a good goal in mind, but their means for getting there are sinful. Now, a couple other things to notice in this text. One is, is interesting, and that is the dialogue between the mother and the son. You do get the impression, right, when you read this, that Jacob's like 12 years old or something. Because his mom says to him in verse 8, and she'll say this again, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. And you'll see what Jacob keeps saying is, Yes, mommy. Yes, mommy. Right? Jacob's a mama's boy. Jacob is a mama's boy. He's hanging out with mom. Esau's hanging out with dad. Okay, here's the kicker. How old is Jacob right now? About 77. <laughs> About, now, he's a, he's a spry 77. 
right? 77 then was like 35-ish today. So he's kind of like me, right? But way too old to be saying, yes, mommy, what shall we do, mother? And mom's saying, obey me, son, obey me, son. Now run along. And what is he, what is he continually doing? Yes, mommy. Yes, mommy. To mama's boy. She sends him out. And her plan is, son, here's what we're going to do. I found out your dad's trying to deceive us. So our plan, here's my plan, is we are going to deceive him. We're going to beat him to the punch. This is wicked. This is wicked. Isaac's not an enemy. Isaac's a, a fellow believer. This is her husband. This is Jacob's father. Why not confront him? Why not go to him? Galatians 6.1 If someone is in sin, those of you who are spiritual should, should go, confront, restore him with gentleness. Why don't they do that? Why does she have to deceive him? Why does she say, honey, you're making a mistake. Why doesn't she have that conversation with him? She should. Honey, do you not remember what... I, I, I heard what you were telling Esau. I know your plan here. I know what you're doing. Honey, do you remember what God said? Jacob is the son of the promise. Sweetheart, you're not seeing clearly right now. This will not honor the Lord. We mustn't do it. She could have gone to him, couldn't she? Appealed to him. Appealed to his conscience with the word of God. But she doesn't. Her plan is to deceive him. Jacob brings up a, a concern. A very valid concern. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. It's okay. You can laugh. It's, it's, it's going to get better. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. The word is actually deceiving and so his concern is that if I go in there, at, you know, my smooth self, we're not going to pull this off. And he says, and it shall seem to be that we are deceiving him. No, actually, that's exactly what you're doing. It will not seem to be that. That is your intention here. This whole plan is deception. But he points out the obvious problem in the plan. And that is, mom, there's a big difference between me and my brother Esau. Okay, dad's eyes may be really bad, but I'm not a, I'm not a Wookiee. Okay, Esau was a Wookiee. How hairy do you have to be that when you're born, your parents name you Harry? Really hairy, right? That was Esau's name. He came out and they said, we should name him Harry, because I can't even see his eyes. He's a really, and he grows up, and apparently he is still hairy like that. And see, we could have every guy stand up right now. We're not going to do this. And there's the hairy men, and there's the smooth men. Okay, I am, I'm embarrassed to say, I'm a smooth man. I have always wished I was hairier. I feel so much more masculine. Can't grow a beard. See a guy grow a beard, I'm like, man, that is awesome. I want a beard. I try to grow a beard, and like people see me in public and call the police. I look like a predator. It's not good. We have this tradition in our family. It's pretty funny. I get to go every, every summer. I go for a week and I take the boys camping. It's our boys trip. 
I take the boys camping and we, we get up in the mountains and what do I not do for that whole week? It's the only week the whole year I don't do this. I don't shave my face for the entire, I shave my legs and stuff, but I don't shave my face for the entire week. Right? And I come home, and the whole, the tradition is, it's this fun thing between me and Kristen, it's all about the reaction, right? And so I come home, and I, you know, and I haven't showered or anything for a week, right? And I just run up to give her a hug, and I'm sure she's glad to see me, but she's uninterested in anything physical right now. So she just kind of points, love you, glad to see you, there's the shower. And so she sends me down the hall. And every year, this is the tradition. So I go, and I shave off everything except the mustache. <laughs> And then I walk out with just this wispy, thin, creepy, crimey looking mustache. She freaks out and runs away and I chase her and I catch her every time. <laughs> this little tradition. Right? Some of you guys could hold up your arm right now and like, wow, okay, yeah, we see that. Is there skin there? You can't even see. You're like, does he even have hair on his arm? I do, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm like Jacob, Okay. So Jacob says to mom, listen, dad's eyesight is bad, but uh, I, don't, I don't look like Chewbacca, right? Esau looks very different than I do. He feels very different. He smells very different. Mom basically says, don't worry about it. She's got a plan. We'll see. Verse 13, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So she sends him out. Verse 14, so he went and took them and brought them to his mother. Now, this is kind of funny also because they're, they're, they're looking to pull one over on Isaac. Isaac is expecting wild game, and she sends him out to kill a couple goats. Uh, goats are not very difficult to hunt. I've had goats, and they're pretty easy to snag. But we're dealing with Jacob right now, right? So he goes out and gets a couple goats. His mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Now, here we go. Here's her plan that's going to answer Jacob's objection. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. It's messed up, isn't it? So she's putting him in Esau's clothing. Really trying to pull one over on dad. And then here we go, verse 16. Because when we hear about how hairy Esau is, we say, how hairy was he? Well, Scripture tells us. Just how hairy was this guy? And the skins... Of the young goats, she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So this gives you an idea how hairy Esau was. Okay, goat's hair. I've had goats. It doesn't feel like human hair. It's coarse. Okay. And she she cuts off some of the flesh from the goat carcass with the skin intact and drapes it over the back of his neck and straps it to the back of his hands. So he goes into dad looking like an upright goat. (laughs) And that's Esau. He's going to reach out and touch your hand, probably. Or he's going to, when he blesses you, he's going to pull you down close to him. So he's going to grab you by the back of the neck. So we need to make sure that what he sees, what he feels, what he smells, what he touches, it's going to remind him of his son. And so it's, it's a goat. Verse 18. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau. <clears throat> I am Esau. 
your firstborn. Right, we're going to see that he doesn't sound like him. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, he is suspicious. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? It's like, well, because they were goats. <laughs> and it doesn't take long to put a lasso on a goat and take it to mommy. He's like, Esau normally takes longer than this. You'd have to go out with your, with your bow and, and, and find wild game and hunt it and skin it and kill it and prepare it. This seems awfully quick. Now, his answer is terrible. He answered, uh, because the Lord your God granted me success. Wow. So he's lying to dad. Right, he's lying to dad. And then what does he say to get dad to back off? He brings God into it. This is what Christians do. Right, we're backed into a corner and someone's getting too close. We start spiritualizing things. Hey man, haven't seen you a lot lately. Where have you been? Haven't seen you at church? Oh, yeah, I've just been... I've just been in a lot of communion with the Lord. Really? All right. And that's meant to be like, back off. I'm really doing well. I'm totally spiritual. Hey, man, I've seen you making some decisions in your life. And, you know, what are you doing? I'm, I'm concerned about you. Or, hey, I, I know you're dating this gal and she doesn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't know God. She doesn't love God. What are you doing there? I mean, I'll tell you what, I have just been praying and praying and praying. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit has led me to this point in my life. Oh, I wouldn't want to argue with God. Right? That's what it does. It's a tactic. It just puts people in a corner where, well, if you're a good Christian, you're not going to question the Holy Spirit, are you? And we spiritualize things. Oh, Jacob, it's an outright lie. The Lord God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Right? Because he doesn't sound like Esau. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. It's working. It's working. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And here's what seals the deal. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. You see, so they appeal to all eyes not working. They appeal to every other sense. And apparently Esau smells like a, a, a goat carcass. When Isaac blesses him, he's going to praise him because he smells like dirt. So they've pulled it off. They've pulled a fast one on dad. And so Isaac pronounces this deathbed, patriarchal, prophetic blessing over his son, Jacob. But he thinks it's Esau. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. 
This is true. Boys, I have four boys. They smell like dirt all the time. Always smell like dirt. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. We really see Isaac's sin here, don't we? We really see his sin. Because he is going directly against God's word. Because what did God say back in chapter 25? The older will serve the younger. God said Esau is to serve Jacob. And Jacob will rule over Esau. And Jacob is the son of the promise. And what does he pray over Esau? Be Lord over your brothers. Esau, may you rule over Jacob. And may your mother's sons, i.e. Jacob, bow down to you. Isaac is trying to thwart God's plan. Misunderstanding that the power of the blessing is not in the words. The power of the blessing is in the God behind the words. But here he is with this formula. Now we know that he was grieved over his son Esau. We know that he was not happy with the decisions that his son was making. But if he were to choose between Esau and Jacob, Esau was his boy. Esau was the one he favored. And he wanted Esau to be the child of the promise. He wanted God to change Esau's heart. Wanted God to work out things in Esau. Wanted Esau to lead the family. Wanted Esau to rule over the brothers. Wanted Esau to be the son of the promise. And so he blesses him thinking, did you see that Isaac is not seeing clearly? I mean, can you thwart God's plan? Does he think that at this point God is in heaven? Right, wringing his hands. I can't believe it's come to this. How did I not see this coming? And he's going to change God's plan? But this is true that, that when Christians fall into sin, they do things that are totally unreasonable. They make no sense. It doesn't make sense biblically. It doesn't make sense spiritually. Half the things Christians do when they're in sin don't even make sense logically. Just like you're walking off a cliff. No good can come from this. And Christians will have big blind spots. And they won't see it. And that's Isaac in our story at this point. Going against God's word because God said two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and Esau shall serve Jacob. The older shall serve the younger. Verse 30. It's about to get complicated. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, When Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting. 
they pass each other at the door. Isaac's going out, or I'm sorry, Jacob's going out, and Esau's coming in. Apparently he doesn't think anything of the fact that his brother's dressed like a dead goat. But Esau wasn't much of a thinker. So Esau comes in and just sort of disregards this. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Uh-oh. Verse 32, His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. So the deception comes to light. And what is Isaac's response? It tells us he trembled violently. Now, for years I believed, and when I first read it again, the emotion I attached to Isaac trembling violently was anger. He's angry because he's found out that he's been deceived by his own flesh and blood. But I don't think so. I don't think that's what's taking place in the mind of Isaac. When else do people tremble violently in your Bible? In fact, 90% of the time, why are people trembling violently in the Bible? It's before God. It's before God. I think James Boyce has it right when he says this, I find the change in Isaac in verse 33. After the blessing has been given, Jacob had returned to Rebekah and Esau had appeared in the tent to offer the fruit of his hunting. Who are you? Isaac asks. And when Esau replies, I am your son, your firstborn Esau, the light began to dawn within the soul of the blinded patriarch. And as the text says, Isaac trembled violently. What was happening to Isaac? It was the realization that he had tried to box with God and had been defeated. And that he would always be defeated unless he surrendered his own errant will to the Almighty. He's convicted of his sin. He's been fighting God. He's been trying to thwart God's plan. And he has just been shown sharply by God that he cannot thwart his plan. And that his deceptive plan has failed. And he's caught. And he's found out. And God's purposes, despite his best efforts, have stood firm. And it causes him to tremble violently before a holy God. I think at this point, you're going to see a change in Isaac now. And he is no longer engaged in a willful rejection of God's decree. That's where he's been. It's been a willful rejection of God's decree. I know your plan, God. I know what you want to do and I don't like it. But rather now, he is obediently accepting it. 
And I think you see that, for starters, at the very end of the verse I just read, when he says, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. He shall be blessed. Your brother is the child of the promise. God's plan will not fail. And Isaac is now going to conform himself to the will of God. He could have taken his blessing back. This wasn't some magical thing that you couldn't take back. It's not like a, a stranger could walk into your house and trick the blind guy and then your neighbor ends up as the child of the promise. Okay, that's not going to happen. He could say that this, was, this happened under false pretense. I was deceived. Therefore, I take back that blessing and I give the blessing now to my son Esau. But that's not what he says. After trembling violently before Esau and before God, he says, yes, and your brother Jacob shall be blessed. And he's going to stick to that as we go. Derek Kidner said he knows at this point that he's been fighting against God as Esau had, and he accepts defeat. In fact, we're going to see in the beginning of chapter 28, in fact, we're going to find that Isaac never even rebukes his wife or his son for deceiving him. Because when you're truly repentant and you're truly feeling the guilt of your sin, you're not out to confront other people in their sin. That's always how I know whether someone is repentant or not. If I'm dealing with two people, right, in counseling, if I'm dealing with two people and both say they're repentant, but one of them can't stop talking about the other person's sin, I know they're not repentant. Because here's what happens. When you're repentant, the sin of others around you, even their sin against you, disappears. And you are engulfed with the guilt of your own sin. And that's all you can see. And you're single-minded to do whatever it takes to be reconciled in your relationship before God and others. That's going to be Isaac now. He never lets his wife have it. He never lets Jacob have it. In fact, he's going to repeat the blessing we'll see next week at the beginning of chapter 28 to Jacob, and he does it with cheerfulness. He totally accepts God's will. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Don't start feeling sorry for Esau. Okay, Esau's not a good guy. Esau's not a victim. He's not a victim. You're going to see he's not even sad right now. He's ticked. He's angry. And it's going to come out. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Because what does Jacob mean? Deceiver. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. He was not cheated out of his birthright. He was, he was dumbed out of his birthright. He traded it for a bowl of soup and he basically signed a legal contract giving it up. He didn't need to do that. He wasn't cheated out of that. But then he says, is it not right that my brother is called Deceiver? And I'm thinking, well, if your brother's named Deceiver, you might want to watch that guy. Like, you, If he deceives you, you sort of have it coming. right? One kid's name is Harry and the other kid's name is Deceiver. You should have a tracking device on Deceiver. You should be watching him. You shouldn't be surprised when he comes. Well, yeah, that's my name. That's my name. I'm Deceiver. What did you expect? So Isaac answered and said, Behold, 
I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Do you hear his submission to God at this point? He's now repeating the promise of God from chapter 25. You shall serve your brother Esau. I didn't want this. I didn't. I tried to work against it. I tried to ruin God's plan. I tried to get what I wanted. But I've been wrong. And God's promise is going to stand. And as sad as it makes me, son, you're going to serve Jacob. Jacob is the son of the promise. God in His infinite wisdom has chosen to work through Him, Son, and not you. And He confirms this publicly before the hardest person it would be to confirm it in front of. Esau himself. He goes from faithlessness to faithfulness at this point. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He has his own plan, doesn't he? He says, dad's going to die soon and then I'll set aside some time for mourning and then it's payback for Jacob. Now what's interesting in God's providence is how much longer is Isaac going to live? Here Isaac was rushing this, trying to get his plan shoved through the door. It's going to be 43 years. 43 years before dad finally kicks the bucket. And then the morning, and then you can go after Jacob. Murderous intent. Murderous intent. A godless man. He just wants to kill him. Just wants payback. Verse 42, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. That's a very interesting sentence. It doesn't say that she was listening in like she was in the beginning of our story, right? In verse 5. Okay, the glass is not on the door. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So Esau said this and it was told to Rebekah what Esau said. But go back to verse 41. Who did Esau say this to? himself these were his thoughts is what that means so he thought to himself i'm going to kill my brother jacob and someone who knew his thoughts told rebecca wow right moms know everything You're not pulling anything over on mom. If God himself needs to come and rat you out, he will. (laughs) But it does show us who, who I believe who God is working with here. It does show us who God is working with. 
God comes to Rebekah. He tells her so. She sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's a rough sentence. He's really upset over this, but he's finding comfort. He's finding in the comfort at the thought of killing you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. So what is she saying? She's saying, listen, your brother's ticked off. He's angry. He wants to kill you. Uh, Go to your uncle's house. Okay, go stay with your uncle. Let's let Esau cool off. When he's cooled off, I'll call for you in a little while and you can come back. She says, in a while, which would have implied weeks or, or maybe months. But here's the really sad thing about this verse. This is the last time Rebecca's going to see Jacob. She's going to die before she sees him again. Never going to see her boy again. But she sends him away to protect him. Then the last sentence. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And these are also sweet words into the heart of Rebecca. Does she love both her boys? She loves both her boys. Is she full of sorrow because of Esau and how he's turned out? She is. Can some kids turn out in such a way that their parents are filled with sorrow? They're filled with sorrow. And she's in that position with Esau. He's brought much bitterness into her life. But he's still her boy, and she loves him. She sends Jacob away because she said, why should I lose both my boys in one day? So here I am, I'm trying to do something good. I've got good ends in mind. Probably didn't use the best means. I've deceived my husband, deceived my son. My son hates my other son, wants to kill him. Surely my son hates me. She's saying, I've lost Esau. I've lost him. I don't want to lose you too, Jacob. She sends him away. And it's the last time she's going to see him. Last time. No anger. No anger from her. No anger from Jacob. A lot of sorrow. Three closing observations. Three closing observations. Number one, everyone in this family is a sinner. Everyone is messed up in this family. There's no hero in this story. Right? I mean, we can say, well, Isaac and Esau are worse sinners okay, than Rebecca and Jacob. Their sin was less sin, but they're still sinning. Outright lying to your dad. It's one thing when you deceive an enemy and you do this, but your father, your husband, there's other courses of action that surely could have been taken. There's deception going on in this family. This isn't good. So everyone in this house is a sinner. Now the truth is is that everyone in this house is a sinner. Everyone in this family is a sinner. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this church is a sinner. You say, well, I'm, a, I'm an affirmed member. You're a sinner. <laughs> You're a sinner. I know you've got the Veritas badge. You know the secret handshake. You're a sinner. You're still a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, just like your pastor. We're sinners. See, what we can do, stories like this are good for us because when we find stories where there's a good guy, we all identify with the good guy. And we should not identify with the good guy. We should identify with the bad guys. But we read a story like Noah's Ark and we identify with Noah. 
And we should not identify with Noah in the story of Noah's Ark. We should identify with the people who are drowning in the endless sea because of their sin. That's who we should identify with. Because that is who we are. Every inclination of the heart without God is only evil all the time. That's who we are apart from the grace of God. And our justice, if justice would be served to us, it would not be eternal union with God. It would be eternal alienation from God. So when we read stories where there is a good guy who looks like a good guy, where there is a, quote, hero, we should not be identifying with the hero, but we are prone to do that. And then we make the story about that. Oh, be a Noah. Be a Noah. Be a Jacob. Be a Joseph. Be a Daniel. You can't. And you wouldn't want to be. You know why? Because they're sinners. Just like you. They're sinners. Everyone in the house is a sinner. And yet, second observation, God carries out His sovereign purpose. Everyone in this house is a sinner. No one's working for God. Okay, everyone's taking matters into their own hands. Everyone's plotting. Everyone's scheming. No one trusts anybody. And yet God's sovereign purpose stands. I mean, here is Isaac with his hand on whom he thinks is his son Esau pronouncing this blessing. At the end of his blessing, sending his son away thinking, I did it. Right? Thinking, what now? I did it. My purpose. My purpose stands in his moment of arrogance and pride. And then who comes walking through the door a few minutes later? Esau. Hey, Dad. Oh. you got to be kidding me. What just happened? God's sovereign purpose stood. Christians use weird language sometimes, like, I don't know if I'm within God's will or not. Or I feel like I'm outside God's will. What does that mean? That implies that you can somehow be outside of God's plan. God has a will and God has a plan and it is always, every second of every day, being accomplished exactly the way God wants it accomplished. Now you can be disobeying God and going against His revealed will when God says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. You can curse God and you can go your own way. But you're never outside the will of God as if you had the power to be outside the will of God. It means that you cannot thwart God's plan. For some of you, that's good news because you have committed grievous sin and instead of turning to Christ, you actually turn away from Him because you think you've blown it and there's no hope and you've ruined God's plan for your life. That's rubbish. That's silly talk. And it's silly thinking. There's always room at the cross for repentant sinners. Not arrogant sinners, not proud sinners, not sinners with their own plans, not sinners with full hands, but sinners with empty hands and full and sorrowful hearts who are sorry for what they've done and plead again for the mercy of Christ. There's always room at the cross for that. Unending room. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've thought. It doesn't matter what you've said. There is always a spot at the foot of the cross. You can go there. And you can plead again for the mercy of Christ 
and you shall have it. But will you? Will you? Everyone in this room is a sinner, yet God carries out His sovereign purpose. And then the final observation. Everyone in the house is a sinner, and yet God is merciful and gracious. So the story doesn't end like this. Everyone in the house is a sinner. Therefore, God deals justly with every one of you. Friends, the story could end that way and God would be glorified in that. But God is gracious and merciful. That's the unexpected ending. That's the plot twist in God's story. That's the twist you don't see coming. Is that we're all sinful and we all dishonor God and we all disobey God and we all disregard God and yet He is gracious and merciful. Number one, He's merciful. God is merciful. This is what mercy is. It is when you don't get what you deserve. You deserve something and God withholds it. As a sinner, you deserve justice. You deserve punishment. You deserve the wrath of God. But God has been merciful to you and He has withheld from you what you deserve. And grace is giving you what you do not deserve. God loving you and providing for you and saving you and giving you friends and giving you family and giving you good water to drink and good food to eat and a church to worship in and nice air to breathe and possessions and joy and life. All these things are things you do not deserve, but God is giving them to you. He's withholding what you deserve and he's giving us what you don't deserve in spite of the reality that every single one of us is sinful. And have done nothing in and of ourselves to earn that grace. I did this in first service and I'll do it again. I didn't plan to end the sermon this way, but when we were singing that song, Grace Upon Grace, I wanted to end with the words to that song. Not to exalt Heath, the guy who's playing the guitar, who wrote this song, who writes amazing songs, truthful songs that stir the heart and are faithful to God's Word. But the words of this song are a reminder of how gracious God has been in spite of the fact that we are all sinners in this house. Grace upon grace given to those your blood has washed clean, pure as the snow. Righteousness bestowed to dead, dry bones. The gift of flesh from hearts of stone. Your grace is marvelous, shown to all by the rain that flows to feed this world. A rainbow's remembrance to patience you hold. Despite our guilt, despite our wickedness, you offer grace upon grace. You are perfect and I'm a sinner, washed and claimed by Christ Redeemer. You are mighty and I am weak, but your grace is all I could need, Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that you've given us. As Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we are nothing apart from You. We do nothing good apart from You. We think nothing good apart from You. We accomplish nothing good apart from You. 
We do good things that are self-serving and good in the world's eyes that really lead to nothing eternally good. And yet You love us, God. You love us enough to where You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And Jesus, God the Son, You went to that cross willingly. Willingly. And took on the wrath of God in our place. You were punished instead of us. We deserve to be punished, and yet You were punished in our stead. And so we love You, Jesus. We need You, Jesus. And we worship You, Jesus. We pray all of this in Your name and for Your sake. Amen.